Hi, and welcome to House Call, our podcast designed to help you navigate the New York City real estate market. I'm Andrew Fishkind, as always, here with my co-hosts and partners, Carl Eckroth and Emily Margolin. Hello. Hey, everyone. Hi. We're here today with attorney Ira Sessler of Sessler & Sessler, who is, amongst other things, a real estate attorney here in New York. Good morning. Good morning. Why don't we start by having you tell us a little about yourself and your firm. Sure. The firm has been practicing in New York City for about 60 years. We've had the pleasure of having both an accounting firm and a law firm sharing the same premises. So as a result, most of the work we do as attorneys is financial in nature, a lot of corporate formation, a lot of estate planning, asset protection, and of course, real estate. Awesome. You've segued us perfectly into what we want to talk about today, which is I wanted to start with the topic of investment property. We speak to a lot of clients. We, Our team is focused really on mostly Manhattan, about half of Brooklyn, and a smaller portion of Queens. That's where our team does the predominance of our business. And we periodically come across people who are interested in investment property, specifically acquiring it. We should really stick to the buy side of that today and wanted to get some insights from a legal perspective anyway on investment property in New York City and what your take on all of that is. Perfect. So I'm glad you said from a legal perspective because I am not a real estate investment expert, but I will tell you that we do quite a bit of asset protection, which means protecting the property you're purchasing, protecting other properties you may already have, and of course your individual assets against judgment creditors. And of course, at the end- At the actual end. (laughs) Yeah, at the actual end against the tax man. So we're looking to protect you now, we're looking to protect your estate, we're looking to protect stepped up basis in order to maximize your estate so you can leave it to your loved ones. That makes a lot of sense. And do you, from your legal perspective, you're indifferent to whether it's a co-op, a condo, or a house, it's really about how you wrap the asset and protect it for the actual owner? That statement is true. I really don't recall anyone buying co-ops as an investment because of the serious restrictions mm-hmm. on rentals and transfers and so on. So from my perspective, it doesn't make a great investment. What most people are looking for is either condos, if they're looking to rent it out, or multifamily homes, or commercial real estate for that matter. Absolutely. And you were saying briefly before we began, which I'm happy to bring the conversation to the uh, recording, is how the properties are held. Do you want to talk a little bit about that in terms of what's the most effective way to to hold the property and why? Well, the best way to hold the property is hold it in some kind of corporate entity. Most people use an LLC, but you can talk to your tax professional to decide which corporate entity is best for you. The reason to do this is, one, it's much cleaner than holding it in your own own name. Having multiple properties in your own name makes it difficult to apportion expenses for taxes at the end of each year. I think most importantly is asset protection. If you own a piece of property or multiple pieces of property and something happens at that property, you're renting it out and God forbid someone gets hurt and there's a lawsuit, in the event of a judgment, all they're going to get is that property. And of course, if you have insurance, you're going to get a defense and the insurance hopefully will pay off and you'll be made whole, but you'll limit your exposure to that property. If you own all your properties in your individual name, including your own cash and investments and your one or two or three properties that you own, if something were to happen, all of it becomes exposed to the judgment creditor. So this is something we want to avoid at all costs because it could be devastating. Carl Eckroth, the individual, should not put 10 investment properties in his own name. He should have 10 separate LLCs. I would have 10 separate LLCs. Every property, in my opinion, should be a separate LLC. 
It costs money to set up. It costs money possibly each year if it's an individually owned LLC, Internal Revenue Service will treat it as a disregarded entity. So you can almost like a sub escort, you can just run the numbers and pick up any income or loss on your own personal tax return. But if you own it with another party, um, you'll have to file a separate tax return. There are costs to it, but it's like buying insurance. There's cost to an insurance premium and you get a benefit in the event of a loss. This is money well spent, in my opinion. And the, the extent of your exposure is the value of the property. Correct. That yeah. makes a lot of sense, actually. We come across periodically investor-friendly co-ops where there's no restrictions on subleasing and things like that. And it was my understanding that most co-ops don't allow anything but individual ownership. And how do you advise on that? I can't speak for every co-op. I've not seen it. They may have within their own house rules liberal policies regarding rentals. And it may be a good investment to take, but you probably have to hold it in your own name. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you're renting it to people who, in turn, are having invitees, and they're going to be in the apartment, and you're not there. And if something were to happen, you better carry high-limit insurance policies in that case. Absolutely. And we don't see a lot of that. I mean, in Manhattan, where 70% of the market is co-op, we don't typically see investors looking at co-ops. It's typically small buildings or large buildings, depending on the size of their investment, townhouses, multifamily houses, or condos. That's typically what we see mm -hmm. the most of. And Ira... Coming back to the multifamily or the townhouse versus condo and taking co-ops out of the equation, when somebody's looking at a condo versus a townhouse, for example, as an investment, right? Townhouse, do what you want for the most part. You, you got to report to the Department of Buildings if you're doing renovations, things like that. But it's, there's no underlying house rules to that house. In a condo, there is. So as, is that something as an attorney that you're advising your clients, hey, look, we need to look at the house rules, any underlying terms that are specific to that condo that need to be taken into account? Well, when I represent a client who comes to me and tells me they're buying this as an investor, I always speak to them about what are their goals, short-term, long-term goals. To me, when you're making an investment, I don't care if it's a stock or a piece of real estate, the moment you buy it, you want to know what your exit strategy is. What are you doing here? How are you going to monetize this investment? You're going to rent it out? And what are your goals in the future? As far as meeting the client's expectations, we always go through a process of due diligence. We read through 36 months of board of managers minutes. We'll also review the financials. We'll review the offering plan, house rules, and make sure there's nothing in there that restricts our client's objective. So it sounds like it's pretty similar due diligence as a you know primary purchaser would be just with that added thought that, hey, this is going to be for investment. Yeah, it's actually, it's an addition because I still have to read through to find out what's going on, who's smoking on the floor, what incidents of infestation, odors, rates of common charge increases and in assessments. So we do all that. And then we do the added layer of making sure there's nothing in there that defeats our client's objectives as an investor. I have a, a owner of a condominium and he's been renting it out for three years, but it's under his own name. Would you recommend someone who's already purchased to transfer that to an LLC or at that stage? I or would. I, just, okay. I, I would because you're immediately going to get the benefit of protecting all of this person's other assets. Um, it's a decision that needs to be made um, with their tax professional because there may be issues of basis and just make sure that there's nothing that they've done in the past or are going to do now that's going to adversely affect them financially. But generally speaking, it's not an issue. Even if they were to put it into the LLC and maintain the basis that they purchased, there's no real downside to doing that. 
I'll tell him. <laughs> For the sake of argument, you own multiple properties. You have multiple LLCs. You own a building in Queens. You own three condos in Manhattan. And then I assume that also makes it cleaner and easier for estate planning purposes because you can dispose of each individual LLC under a larger estate plan, I would imagine. I don't know if it makes it easier. It might make it a little cleaner. I think once you pass, whether you own an investment in your own name or you actually own 100% interest in the LLC, it's still part of your estate. So it doesn't do anything for um, estate tax purposes. It possibly may make things cleaner in terms of wrapping it up, selling the properties by keeping them separate. So it's really just a, a limited liability corporation, right? As an LLC, so it's really about liability. I think it's more about liability. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be too concerned about how your executor or trustees, uh, however it's held, is gonna, how they're going to deal with it later. It's really to protect you during your lifetime. Gotcha, that makes thing. sense. A question for you, kind of circling back to townhouses. We've got a client right now who is looking at townhouses as an investment. He's looking at both multifamilies, you know, small, three, four units, but he's also looking at multifamilies where there's a retail component on the ground floor. Are there any things that that buyer has to be on the lookout specifically? Outside of what we can advise him, rates for the standard rent for residential, standard rent for commercial, but are things that's from a legal standpoint that that buyer has to consider because there's now a commercial component versus a pure four-unit residential townhouse? That's a good question. I think it really depends on the nature of the business that's there, size of the space, what percentage of the total rent roll it brings in, and the concern that you want to minimize your average vacancy allowance over the life of the property. So if it's a strong tenant and you have no reason to believe that you're going to have a vacancy in the near term, it's fine, but the whole thing as an investment really could be turned upside down if that retail space represents half your rent roll and suddenly you have uh, vacancies. And right now, residential rentals are hot, and yet we see how many you know storefronts are still yep. open and, and, and unused, so that might be a big concern as an investor. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And do you, do you also represent landlords once they've got the property? Do you represent them as landlord to their tenants and things of that nature? So well? we will see them through the acquisition. If a landlord needs representation as a landlord, as in landlord tenant, uh, that's a specialty. Okay. It's like asking a pulmonologist if you'll do your heart replacement. So that's a specialty that I do not get involved with okay. in. And we would recommend them to someone that specializes in landlord-tenant work. Makes sense. In which case, I will spare you all of the new rental law and fair housing yeah, questions thank you. that, that I have. <laughs> not part of my world at the moment. Fair enough. If you could give two pieces of advice to someone who's thinking about purchasing an investment property, specifically in Manhattan, Brooklyn, other than purchasing an LLC, what would they be? And be, feel free to say, it's my personal opinion. If you're willing. Um, I think everything I say is my personal. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Not being an expert in the nuances of evaluating a property, I leave that to you folks um, and working with them. As an investor, this is my personal opinion, I would be looking for emerging markets. I think it's slightly problematic buying in markets that are already fully developed. Yes. Uh, because how much further can it go? We've been proven wrong many times over and things have gone higher. But I would look more for properties that are in emerging areas that have a lot of opportunity 
for growth and rental growth as opposed to something that's fully valued. One of the things that we face in estate planning is how to preserve the estate so you can transfer as much as of your life's bounty to your loved ones, whoever they may be, or charities or whatever it is. I find a lot of people wanting to, and by the way, a good deal of my work comes from self-help. I love clients that exercise self-help and don't seek out professional advice because I've had many clients in the past, and there's not much we can do at this point who decide they want to clean up their estate. They don't want to leave a burden to their children. So they take their property, and it could be their individual residence, or it could be an investment property, and they decide to put it into their children's name. And what happens is when you make a gift like that, the child then takes your basis Mm -hmm. in the property. And I've had people that have bought all kinds of properties for prices that we haven't seen in my lifetime, $100,000. They bought it in the 60s, and suddenly the property is worth $4 million. There are ways to make it easy for these properties to transfer to your children, uh, but also retain the stepped-up basis concept so that in the end there's no tax to pay when they sell it. Because that's tough, getting that uh, inheritance yes. and then having to pay 50% Morning, the loss of the and getting the tax, tax bill is not a great combination. So one of the tools we use for residential real estate in particular is deeding the property to the child or children and retaining a life estate. And this gives you the ability to remain in possession. It's actually your obligation to maintain the property, pay the taxes. So really nothing changes, but the property actually belongs now to the child. Wait, how is that different than what you just said in terms of, I'm just not following. So now you're saying they would put the property under their child's name. Right. But in the first story, they just put it in their child's name. And in the second scenario, we have the life estate. So the way the life estate works is you as the grantor have the ability to retain all the use and enjoyment and rents of that property for your lifetime. And that life estate is only extinguished either upon your death or upon the sale of the property. Now, if you're going to sell the property, this may not be, it depends on when you're going to sell, this may not be the right tool, but I have many people that absolutely plan on passing in their home or have no interest in selling their investment property. And we have that retained life estate. And the nice thing about it is you retain the stepped up basis in that property upon death because internal revenue deems it an an incomplete gift because it's encumbered by the life estate. It's almost like you left it in a will. It's almost like a testamentary gift of real estate. So at the moment of death, the life estate is extinguished. The property is already in the child's name. There's nothing they need to do. And they now get the stepped up basis. So whether they continue to hold it or want to sell it, they'll have no capital gains tax to pay other than the continued appreciation in the property between date of death and the sale. That's great. Life estate. I didn't know that. Great, great tool for estate planning.